Hi there, and welcome to episode 37 of the Eyes Free Sports podcast. This is Greg Lindbergh here. On this episode, we are skating with one of the founding fathers of blind hockey here in the United States. And uh, blind hockey, of course, has been around since the 1970s up in Canada, but is still a very new sport uh, here in the U.S., And so I had the pleasure to chat with uh, someone who really had a big hand in helping the sport uh, become popular here in the U.S. Uh, He's also a college professor, highly educated, and uh, overall just a a great guy. So let's hit the ice here with episode 37. All right, so my guest on this episode of Eyes Free Sports is Kevin Shanley. And uh, Kevin, I consider to be uh, one of the founding fathers of blind hockey uh, here in the U.S. Uh, He's also a college professor, uh, so very uh, versatile life and and career and interests. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. This is going to be fun. I know, like we were just talking uh, before we started, I think blind hockey is probably the most exciting sport uh, going, even though I am a beat baseball player myself. Uh, so really excited to to delve into this great sport. Yeah, you're certainly not going to get any arguments from me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yep. All right. So let's just uh, maybe start off chronologically here uh, initially and just talk to me about where you were born, where you grew up in your early years. Yeah, sure. So um, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and um, in just a very kind of normal um, Boston family kind of existence. Um, I, I always say that one of the, one of the best things that happened to me was that I was born into a family that didn't know what to do with a blind kid. So they just Hmm. treated me like all the other kids. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I was, I was diagnosed with, um, vision impairment at the age of six. I'm the oldest of four. And, um, you know, my, you know, obviously my life changed and that my vision deteriorated pretty quickly over the first couple of years and then kind of slower and and steady ever since then. But other aspects of my life didn't change. You know, I still had a full, um, uh, you know, family experience. I went to, um, local, uh, parochial Catholic school all the way up through high school. Um, went to college and, and lived kind of a, a normal middle-class American life. Gotcha. Very cool. And uh, as far as college, talk to me about your, your college experience and your majors. And I know you've got uh, several degrees. Yeah. So I always joke that when I was in high school, uh, my guidance counselor and, and people around me kept, you know, I had no intention of going to college. I thought, you know, once I was done with high school, that was it. I could, I could finally go on with life. Um, but my guidance counselor and those around me kept saying, no, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. So then when I finally gave in and went to college, there was nobody there that told me to stop. So I just kept going to college. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I first went to, um, St. Michael's college. Um, it's in a suburb of Burlington, Vermont. And, um, my nephew actually goes to school there now. Um, very nice place small liberal arts college, just real nice community, you know, and I came from a small 
small elementary school where we had I think, 15 kids graduated from uh, my eighth grade class and then a small. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was small. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> high school wasn't that much bigger. I think we had 102 um, kids graduate from my high school class. And then, um, you know, so then jumping up to college, I wasn't looking to go to a large state school um, and, you know, become part of a herd or anything like that. So um, it was the right, right fit for me at that time. Um, but while I was there, I discovered that engineering was really what I wanted to pursue. And they didn't directly offer that as a major. Um, so what they did was they had a three plus two arrangement with Clarkson University, which is in the far uh, northern parts of, of New York. So I did that. Yeah, I switched it over. I, after my first three years, kind of taking care of the basic math, science, and, and liberal arts courses, I transferred over to Clarkson for two years where I, I just took uh, engineering courses. So, and then I did, you know, I did what everyone does at that point with an engineering degree. I, I got a job. Um, my job was with IBM. And it was right back in the same town uh, where, where I started college, where, where St. Michael's was. <laughs> so, uh, Interesting. yeah, that was nice. I still had some friends in the area. So I went back there and I started working for IBM and I thought <clears throat> that was going to be the rest of my life. Then September 11th happened. And then the uh, dot-com bubble burst yep. and IBM didn't need as many employees anymore. <laughs> And so I, I survived the first round of layoffs, but I didn't make it through the second round. And right. so about a year into my career, I found myself looking for a new career. And so while that's terrifying at the time, you know, looking back on it now, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me uh, because I've, I've been forced to broaden my horizons and grow in ways that I never would have had an opportunity to do if that hadn't happened. So, um, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, are you, you know, sat with IBM or, you know, and I always say, no, I'm, I'm very grateful to them. I'm grateful for the opportunity mm -hmm. that I had for the year that I was there. And I'm grateful that I, that I got to go off and do other things. Interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was a tough time for engineers. Um, so I spent about a year looking for a job. And nothing was, was really turning up. I was, you know, 23, had a bachelor's degree. And there were a lot of like 35-year-olds with master's degrees in the, in the marketplace. And I just couldn't compete. <laughs> right. Yep. So, um, so I went back to school. And um, I moved back to Boston where my family um, was and still is. And I went to UMass Boston. And, um, I started working on a master's degree and about a year into that, I got an opportunity, um, through a government program to, to start an internship with the Naval Research Lab. Hmm. And, uh, that was pretty cool and pretty exciting. And the best part was that my appointment was actually in their Marine Meteorology Division, which is in Monterey, California. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, so I got to go and live in in Monterey, California, for a year uh, instead of DC, where most of the, the Naval Research Lab is. And so that that's just a beautiful location. Um, 
it was it was a fantastic job. I was I was working on um, improving weather prediction um, for the naval fleet and um, worked with some really incredible people um, while I was there. And probably ninety percent of them had a PhD, and hmm. I noticed that they were the happiest people that I'd ever been around. So I said, you know what? I think I'm just gonna bite the bullet, stay in school, and and go all the way through and get a PhD. Yeah. Interesting. And so I did that. And that path took me back to Clarkson actually. Um, so I'm back to Clarkson university, back to the North country. And so, you know, it's funny, everyone thinks, um, when, when someone says New York, they think New York city automatically and right. Potsdam, New York couldn't be more different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's small, it's rural. It is a college town, but both colleges that are there probably have a combined enrollment of about 7,000 students. Um, hmm. And the closest city is Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, wow. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's out there. But wonderful place to go to school, wonderful place to live. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Both, both of my stints in Potsdam, I, I absolutely embraced and loved. And... Um, Again, when I wrapped up um, at Clarkson, I had a corporate job lined up and I, um, I, I got offered a position with Rolls-Royce. And so I had the opportunity to, to move out to Indianapolis, Indiana, and, um, and work on designing the intake and exhaust systems for gas turbine engines for uh, civil and military aircraft, aircraft propulsion. Hmm. Wow. And so, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, the, the product was high end. Um, the technical challenges were challenging. And again, I, you know, I had an opportunity to really grow and develop in, in ways that I, that I never would have otherwise. Um, but I knew that I always wanted to teach and I wasn't thrilled with the corporate life um, in general, it was, it was pretty stressful. And, um, then an opportunity came up, um, to move back to New York, uh, to where I currently am in New Paltz, New York, where the state university wanted to launch a new mechanical engineering program. And so, the, um, you know, I interviewed with them, we had a few conversations and we decided, you know, both of us decided that, uh, I would be a good fit for the position. And, um, so I, I moved to New York, um, started that job, started that program, quickly grew the program to be one of the largest in the school of science and engineering. And now I had the entire division of engineering programs where I oversee four, four degree programs. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, um, it's been a ride. It's been an interesting ride for sure. <laughs> um, oh yeah. But I've been fortunate that there's always been something interesting um, that I can go and pursue. And that's, that's what motivates me the most. Right. Right. And yeah, just thinking about uh, the different locations you've mentioned. I mean, you've lived in Northeast, Midwest, you know, yeah. out West coast. coast. Yeah. Five different States. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, pretty much every climate 
you know, you can imagine and, and everything. So really interesting. That's right. Yeah. The only thing I've avoided is the Southeast where you are. <laughs> True. And, uh, yep. You never know. You never right? know. Nope. <laughs> and I am curious. I uh, know it sounds like, you know, several of the roles in your career you've had, uh, you know, people would think, well, you know, those probably involve a lot of, you know, visual activity or whatnot. And, I'm curious, how have you kind of been able to be successful, you know, in spite of your visual impairment? Yeah. So what I've found is that computers, and I guess you could say technology in general, has done a lot to level the playing field for someone with vision loss. Um, Growing up, you know, I went to um, elementary school in the 80s and high school in the 90s, and we didn't have these kind of technologies, you know. My, you know, they would send my textbooks out to be enlarged. And basically the best they could do in terms of large print was take a page, put it on a photocopy machine, hit the mat, you know, as much as the magnification as they could fit onto uh, whatever the largest piece of paper, you know, like legal size paper, you know, 11 by 14 or something. And that was the best they could do. Like that was the accommodation. And, um, and in terms of audio books, um, I got a lot of books out of the Princeton library that were on, I'm sure you're familiar with multi-reel tapes and sure. you'd have to reserve those months in advance and they'd mail them to you. And then you have the special recorder that you had to listen to them on. Yep. And it was just, I mean, it was a person sitting there reading and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that that person was willing and able to do that. But there was no bookmarking. <laughs> there was no, you know, you know, you didn't know where you left off oh, yeah. or anything like that. Yep. Um, and so then when I kind of towards the end of my bachelor's degree, computers started to come on board. And um, I've been a Zoom text user for probably 20 years now. And um, just having the ability to magnify to a level that was comfortable um and then having the ability to, to to listen to what was written on the screen it was just like it opened a whole new world to me and then um hmm. all of the jobs that i've had have been very um computer intensive and so that's you know I, i've been able to to do that with the adaptive technology sure very interesting and so in terms of sports uh i understand that you did uh kind of get into skating and maybe some pickup hockey when you were a kid I did. Yeah. I mean, um, hockey was, was kind of King when I was growing up in Boston and, um, every neighborhood, um, had, uh, uh, an ice rink and Hmm. you could go and spend all afternoon on a Saturday and Sunday (laughs) in most cases, um, for a dollar. And, you know, my friends and my parents would kind of round us up and one of them would drive us down and drop us off and, you know, send us in with our, our dollar and maybe a couple more dollars for a (laughs) snack while we were there. And uh, they'd come pick us up at dinner time. And that's how we spent the weekends. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd just be out there skating. And um, a lot of friends played hockey house league and travel and high school hockey and college hockey. Um, and even professionally, um, I didn't have those opportunities because I, you know, I was, I, I couldn't see and 
at that time, my doctor wasn't comfortable with me playing contact sports. And so I did that unofficially. (laughs) (laughs) I played with friends and family, street hockey, pond hockey, um, wherever we could. And I mean, I played all sports too. You know, I played basketball, I played football, I played baseball. I, I enjoyed sports um, my entire life. Sure. And uh, so in terms of adaptive sports, uh, I think you had mentioned to me, you did try beat baseball at one time, right? I did. Yeah. So at that period of time where I went back to Boston and I was, I was in grad school and I started playing uh, one season with the renegades. And um, then I got the call to, um, to, to go out to California for that job with the Navy. And it was something that I, I couldn't pass up. You know, I, I knew I wasn't going to make it as a professional beat baseballer right. <laughs> as, as much as I would have loved to, um, yep. I had to yep. go and, and make sure that I, I had a career that I could fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And then, uh, you know, aside from hockey, any other adaptive sports that you've also tried? No. No, I haven't. I mean, I really, um, you know, like I, like I said at the beginning, my family didn't know what to do with a blind kid. So they just kind of threw me in with all the other kids. I sure really didn't even know that there were adaptive sports until I found out about beat baseball. And uh, hmm. I thought, this is, this is really cool. This is great. This is, you know, like an, a level playing field here. Um, yeah. Everyone blindfolded. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, then one of my colleagues at at Rolls Royce was actually legally blind as well, and she played in a in a bowling league, a, a, an adapted uh, bowling league. Um, oh, okay, yep. that's been I, you know I bowled also as a kid, and that's something that's been of interest to me, but I I haven't had the opportunity to, to give it a try. Gotcha. I see. And then, so as far as hockey, blind hockey, uh, talk to me about when you first learned about this sport, you know, that it actually existed and then what really reeled you into it. Yeah. So I, um, I was living in Indianapolis, um, probably around 2011, 2012. And I had, um, you know, I, I had a, a, a desirable job. Um, I had a house, I had a, an 18 month old daughter. I had a dog, you know, not just a pet dog. I, I now use a, a guide dog, but at the time I didn't. Sure. And, um, you know, I had kind of your typical American life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I decided I was bored. And so I decided I was going to play hockey. Um, I was, you know, frustrated as a kid that my doctor wouldn't let me play. And, you know, my, my parents weren't going to go against my doctor's wishes. So I never got to play organized hockey. And I said, at this point, you know what? I'm an adult. No one's going to tell me I can't play hockey anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Like that attitude. (laughs) (laughs) So I did what every 33 year old does. I went and signed up to play hockey for the first time. And, um, nice. I, I found a, um, it was a local, um, adult learn to play league. And it was, I was looking for something that was low stakes. You know, I, I didn't want to play in a competitive league where people were worried about 
points and, and, and standings and winning the league and all that kind of stuff. Sure. I just wanted to play. And so I reached out to the, the organizers of that league and I explained my situation and, and she, to her credit, listened to me and at the end said, yeah, I don't see a problem with that. And I said, Oh, <laughs> oh all right. <laughs> so I, I ran out and got all the gear and, you know, paid my registration fees, joined USA hockey. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I went out and started playing hockey and, uh, it was, it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. You know, I could, I could skate with everyone that was there, um, better than some, they were, they were just learning how to skate. And, um, I couldn't really tell where the puck was. I couldn't make much of a play, but I could tell enough of what was going on and skate well enough to get myself in someone else's way to (laughs) keep them from, from trying to score or things like that. So, uh, you know, I felt like I was, I was contributing on some level. Right. And just the camaraderie and, you know, the, the being around um, other people that were, you know, some people were very experienced and played hockey their entire lives. And other people were just learning to play hockey um, at that point. Some people were just returning to hockey after a number of years. And that was all just, I, I soaked it all in. I loved it. And, um, but one night in particular, I had a tough time tracking the puck in the other, a lot of, the puck went through my skates a lot of times that night. And, um, I I don't think anyone else cared or even noticed, but it bothered me that night. And Hmm. so I went home and I was thinking about my beat baseball days. And I said, you know what? The baseball takes a beating in that and, and they're able to to keep it, you know, safe for, for multi-use. Um, maybe someone's figured out a hockey puck. And so I started Googling and the only thing that came up was this organization in Canada that was then named Courage Canada. It's now known as the Canadian Blind Hockey Association. Hmm. And they had a tournament coming up, a blind hockey tournament. And it was going to be the first national Canadian blind hockey tournament. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. I, you know, I, I remembered playing beat baseball and being out there on the field with, with other blind athletes. And I thought, you know, wow, wouldn't this be really cool on ice? <laughs> you know, the same sure. kind of experience. Yep. And again, you know, oh, I, yeah. I was not very involved with the blind community my whole life growing up. So I, I really hadn't been around blind people except for when I played uh, beat baseball. Hmm, interesting. So I sent a, a quick note, a quick email to the, uh, the tournament director who now I, I know is, uh, Matt Morrow. He's been a good friend for close to a decade at this point. And I basically just said, Hey, this looks really cool. Do you have to be Canadian to play? And I, you know, I had no intention of going up and playing, but I thought maybe in the future we could kind of arrange something. Yep. And he writes back to me and he says, uh, you know, thanks for your note. Um, no, you know, there's nothing that says you have to be Canadian to play. In fact, um, due to injury and illness and commitment, we've had a couple of people that have 
had to back out and we've got some openings. Would you like to come play? And this was in 10 days. <laughs> and, wow. uh, I, you know, again, I had a house, uh, an 18, you know, 18 month old. Actually, she was probably uh, two and a half uh, going on three at that point. Um, yeah, I've got responsibilities. I've got a job and I'm in Indianapolis and the tournaments in Toronto. And so I say, Oh, you know, thank you very much. But you know, I've got a lot going on, you know, maybe, maybe next year. And so Matt responds and he says, Hey, you know, I understand, you know, um, you know, just, just to let you know, this is what's going on. And, you know, it's, you know, it just, it looks even better. And then, you know, so I respond to him again and I said, thanks, you know, and there's this series of back and forth where each time he's, he's not pushing by any means, but every time yeah. he's, he's sweetening the pot, you know, he's, he's making it better. <laughs> yep. More tempting. Yeah. And so, um, long story short, 10 days later, I'm in Toronto playing hockey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Everyone's calling me the American. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. You never know once again, right? No, no, it was, uh, yeah. And you know, you know, over the years I've told the story a, a number of times and, um, you know, it took me a couple of years to really think through it. And then I thought, you know, if my kid ever told me that they were doing something like that, I would kill them. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know these people. I didn't know where I was going. You know, quite frankly, it all sounded too good to be true. Um, sure. And I remember sitting on the plane when I'm flying from Indianapolis to Toronto and I'm, and it was, um, it was just a couple of weeks after, um, Heisman trophy finalist Manti Teo had gotten, outed on his catfishing um issue oh yeah i remember that <laughs> pretty crazy <laughs> and i'm sitting there on the plane thinking am i the next manti tail you know <laughs> like did i just completely get hoodwinked here and um mm. i land in toronto and i gotta go through customs and you know the woman looks at me and she says why are you you know why are you coming to toronto today and <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm here to play in the first Canadian national blind hockey tournament. And she says, really? And I said, yeah. And as convincing a tone as I could, though I, I wasn't horribly convinced at the moment. And uh, she bought it. <laughs> and uh, I went and got in a taxi and, you know, gave him the address and told him what I was doing. And, he could at least confirm for me that there was an ice rink at the address that I gave him. Um, and it was, it was the former um, Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, so a, a historic building, a historic place, which was really cool to wow. play there. Oh yeah. And um, so everyone around Toronto knows exactly where it is and, and what it is. So he was able to confirm that. And then um, we pull up out front and he's like, Oh, here you go. You know, right there on your right. So uh, I get out and I'm getting my, my gear out of the back of the taxi. And this guy says to me, Hey, are you here for the blind hockey tournament? And I, I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> it's real. Finally. Yeah. yeah it set in. Yep. Yep. 
So I got inside and probably within two hours I was on the ice playing hockey. Wow. And were you immediately, you know, did you feel like you had found your community and it, it really kind of clicked this, this is where you belonged? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I mentioned that the camaraderie and everything from that, um, rec league that I was playing in Indianapolis and it, when I got into the dressing room, um, for that tournament, that camaraderie and, um, you know, sort of, uh, brotherhood was taken to a whole nother level, um, in that, in that blind hockey tournament, because now it's hmm. not just a bunch of people that are getting together to play hockey. It's a bunch of blind people that are going through all of the same struggles that you're going through. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback by all of it. And I was quite quiet that first year and I was just taking it all in and to be able to hear the guys talking about the different things and different challenges, different crazy situations that you end up in because you're blind. <laughs> and it's like, right. Yeah all right, it's not just me. Like these guys are all, they're all telling my story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And then, uh, so what, uh, what really inspired you or drove you to, you know, really get this sport or at least, you know, have a hand in, in getting the sport going here in the U S well, I, I, you know, initially I just thought I had, I had my experience. That was wonderful. It was life changing and I'm done. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And, um, and I could have lived a perfectly happy life going on and having that been my only experience, you know, it, it was, it was wonderful. Hmm. And I came back to Indianapolis and that was right at the same time that things were happening with my job change where I, I moved to New York. Um, it was really just a few months after that, that I moved to New York. And, um, again, Matt reached out to me. And, you know, not in a pushy way at all, just kind of started talking to me about the opportunities that we could have in the U S and, um, he had a contact for, for a woman in New York that had been, um, an intern for him, a remote intern, um, a couple of years prior trying to get the, the sport up and running in, in Canada. And, um, he said, you know, she's visually impaired. Maybe you guys can get together and, and, you know, play every now and again. And uh, I thought, well, that's great, Matt, but you know, New York is an enormous state. You know, I'm not supposed <laughs> to say I'm going to move into her backyard. Um, right. As it turns out, I did. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, it was uh, Christine Banchirini. Um, Christine and Vicky are, are sisters, both with Star Guards. So um, both of them and both of them grew up playing hockey um, prior to being diagnosed with Star Guards. And, um, they live about an hour from me and there's a rink in between us. So, um, we were able to arrange some ice time and the rink was nice enough to give it to us for free. And, um, things just kind of snowballed from there. Um, we started getting some participation, some sighted people, some not sighted, um, people started playing with us. We got some pucks shipped in and once we got, our legs under us and kind of established with the, with the ring, Matt again, reached out and said, you know, well, you are not that far from Montreal. What if we rented a bus, um, got a bunch of the guys from the, the team in Montreal to come down 
and we, you know, kind of make a big deal out of it. We call it a, a blind hockey summit and see if we can't get some, some traction. And, uh, so we did that and we ended up doing that two years in a row. And as a result of those two efforts, we started four different teams directly. Our new local New York Nightshade team here, um, the Hartford Brailers, the New York Metro team, and the Washington um, Blind Hockey team all, you know, grew out of those first two events. And hmm. um, wow, yeah. So now they're doing, and it's it's, you know, that's kind of the viral effect, right? So now all those teams start up. They start doing their own events. They start spawning off other teams. And then it, we also got the attention of USA Hockey at the same time. And um, USA Hockey invited us to come do a, a demonstration game at their uh, Disabled Hockey Festival. And it was in Buffalo that year. I want to say that was 2015. And um, they actually um, shut down the entire event during our game so that all of their staff and volunteers were available to come watch the game. And, um, hmm. that was enormous for us, you know, um, not only, oh, yeah. yeah. Cause not only was USA hockey now on board, but they were all of their network was talking about it and telling other people about it. And hmm. that got us a standing invitation to the disabled hockey festival that launched teams in Pittsburgh, Chicago, and St. Louis. And then it just, and the nice thing about the Disabled Hockey Festival is it moves around the country. Um, like we were talking before we started here, we were in uh, in your neighborhood in, T in Tampa yeah. um, just a couple yeah. of years ago. But we've gone to Detroit, Chicago, San Jose. And every time we host an event, two or three new players turn up. And at varying degrees of experience, some are just learning how to skate. Some of them are coming back to hockey. Some of them have played hockey their entire lives. And, and this is just a more um, suitable arrangement for them. Sure. Very interesting. And uh, I guess if we could just do a little brief overview of, of blind hockey, the rules. I know we did talk a little bit about this uh, when I had Doug Hoist on, but if you just want to give a kind of a little primer of, of how this all works. Sure. Um, the thing I like the best about blind hockey is that the rules have been adapted as minimally as possible. Um, so there's two equipment changes. One is the puck. It's larger. It's about twice the size of a standard hockey puck and it's made of metal and it's hollow with uh, six or eight ball bearings inside. And so when you hmm. move the puck, it, it, you know, the ball bearings make noise inside and the puck makes a lot of noise when it hits the boards or hits the, hits the ice or um, anything like that. Um, and then with it being bigger, you know, those of us who have more vision, um, you know, up closer to the 10% region, it's easier for them to see the puck. Um, but it's also easier if you're trying to swipe and find the puck. Um, it's easier to come into contact with it because it's, because it's larger. Right. The second piece of equipment that is modified is the, the goal, the hockey net, a standard NHL net is six feet wide by four feet tall. 
the blind hockey net is still six feet wide, but it is three feet tall. The rationale for that is that the goalie is blind. Um, typically it's a B one athlete that is playing goalie, but even, even if they are a B one or if they're a low B two, they're still blindfolded and they are the only athlete on the ice that is blindfolded. Um, hmm. and that's to level the playing field. And, um, the thought is that goalie is the, is the one position that your lowest sighted player can make the largest impact. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. So you, you, it's a stationary position by and large. So you're not kind of you know, floating around the ice trying to find um, you know, an ice rink, an NHL regulation ice rink is 200 feet by 85 feet wide. So there's a lot of space out there to get lost if you have no tactile um, feedback. Um, sure. If you're the goalie, you should be close enough to the net that you're in contact with the net at all times. Now that's not to say that um, someone with low vision or a B1 can't make an impact um, anywhere else on the ice. Um, I've played every position on the ice and I'm, you know, I'm right on the line between B1 and B2 right now. Um, a good, good friend of mine, Kevin Brown is a B1 plays defense. He wants nothing to do with being a goalie. Um, hmm. He's played, he's played offense as well. Um, he's actually scored on me. <laughs> um, and we've even, we've even trialed um, in all B1, low B2 um, division uh, to see how, how that, that could work out. And it, and it worked just fine. But yeah, so the, the thought behind having the net be shorter is that it's, it's less, less space for the goalie to cover, obviously. But also when the puck is in the air, that's when it makes the least amount of noise. So we want to discourage the forwards from, um, you know, just kind of having the puck in the air all the time and, and the goalie not knowing where it is. Sure. Oh, I see. Then the one kind of rule adaptation um, I really like, um, it's that if you are entering your attacking zone, so an ice hockey rink is broken up into three zones. So it's your defensive zone. That's where your goalie will, will protect your net. Um, there's the neutral zone, which is kind of the middle of the ice. And then there's the, your, your offensive or attacking zone. So once you carry the puck across the line into your attacking zone, your team must complete one pass before you are eligible to score. Hmm. And the, the rationale behind that is to give the goalie the most opportunity to hear the puck. Oh, I you know, see. Cause it, there are ways that you can carry the puck and make it, you know, more quiet and, you know, kind of sneak up. And, um, but the other thing that's nice about it is that it makes it more of a team sport and you're not subject to one athlete on the ice being, um, you know, faster than everyone else. And they can just take the puck from one end to the other and, and have an opportunity to score. You know, if, if you do have that right, athlete, they right. still have to wait and make a pass. I see. That's yeah. That definitely is an interesting concept, and I think can get more people involved as well. It does. Yeah, it makes it more of a team game. Yep. Very cool. And is there a particular position or you know area of the sport that you you know enjoy most being part of? Or 
Yeah, you know, so like I said, I've played every position on the ice, and by far my favorite is goalie. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that's uh, that's kind of the way it's always been for me, um, too. I've always been a natural defender. You know, I'm a defend first kind of a personality, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yep. so that's that's just what I like to do. Gotcha. And uh, can you think of any specific moments, any games that really stand out in terms of actual gameplay? I mean, there's so many at this point now. <laughs> I've been, sure. I've been at, uh, I think it's like 15 different blind hockey, uh, major blind hockey events at this point. And mm-hmm. um, every one of them is is special in its own way. I think, you know, the kind of the one thing that is um, kind of the obvious one is uh, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to play for the U.S. National Blind Hockey Team. Sure. And so anytime you have the opportunity to put on the USA jersey, you know, we we came out. I remember the during our training camp in Utica, New York, I remember we came out for our scrimmage against um, former professionals and college players, um, all of them cited. Um, but we were scrimmaging them and we came out for that game and the crowd was chanting USA. And then, you know, we stood on the blue line, they play the national anthem. And that's, you know, that's all very special moments that very few people get to experience. Exactly. That's awesome. That's a great, uh, great memory. I'm sure you can cherish. And uh, just talk to me about the, you know, the current state of blind hockey. Obviously, COVID has, has kind of affected everything <laughs> as far as sports and team sports specifically. Um, but just talk to me about the current state of the game, the future of the game. Uh, I know there's been chatter about the Paralympics, getting blind hockey into the Paralympics. And where do you kind of foresee things uh, in the future? Yeah, so um, the the present and the future are very bright for blind hockey, you know, and obviously you, you hit the nail on the head. COVID has kind of turned everything upside down. And, um, I would have been much more concerned had we had, had an interruption like COVID, you know, maybe like five years ago. Um, Hmm. but I think at this point we've, we've kind of hit critical mass. We've, the sport's got enough momentum, enough, passion behind it that we're, we're probably going to lose some players. You know, let's be honest. Uh, everyone's life is going to be different when we, when we go back to normal and they're going to have different um, priorities in their lives, but there's, an, there's enough, enough of us there that there are going to be people that jump right back on the ice and, and play blind hockey. And there's sure there's a large number of us that are just dying for that next opportunity for that next um, tournament to come up. So um, I'm not concerned that the sport's going to fade away or anything like that. The goal has been to get blind hockey into the Paralympics in 2026. That's obviously a, a uh, steep challenge and COVID didn't help that. (laughs) Um, So it, it may or it may not happen in 2026, but um, I, I do feel that it's inevitable at this point, um, whether it's 26, 30, 34. I don't think any of that really matters. I think it's, it's, it's on the horizon. Sure. Very interesting. 
And I know that, uh, you know, also before we started, we had chatted about, uh, you know, some NHL clubs being involved in, in helping get some blind hockey teams going. I know, for instance, Minnesota, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, to name a few. And uh, just talk to me about that, that relationship, you know, between those, those pro hockey teams and what that really means uh, to, say, the future of this sport of blind hockey. Yeah, so that's been really um, amazing. And the, the other piece of that is, is kind of another thing that we talked a little bit uh, before we started here is, is awareness, right? That's kind of the, sure. the thing that all blind sports suffer from is, is a lack of awareness. And um, that's, that's something that NHL or any professional um, organization can fix immediately. <laughs> you know, they, they have such awareness, they have such a following that when they open their arms and they embrace a, an adaptive sport, it, you know, it, it becomes much more ubiquitous. And um, a lot of clubs have really latched on and done, done a lot of good for the sport by lending their, their name and lending their logo to, to the local blind teams. Um, many of them also contribute with funding as well, um, which is, which is great. But I, to me, I think it's the awareness piece and, and saying, yes, they are part of us. I think, uh, goes further than any, than any money. Absolutely. No question about that. And uh, in terms of benefits of competing in blind hockey, competing in sports for the blind, you know, let's just say sports for people with disabilities across the board, uh, talk to me about the benefits of, you know, from your experience and maybe just other individuals that you've seen, how this sport in particular has positively impacted their lives. Yeah, so I think it's really the same benefits that that youth sports have. You know, there's the, you know, there's obviously the, the physical fitness aspect of it, right? You're getting out and you're getting active. Um, there's the mental component to it where you're a part of a team. You're, do, you're doing your part. You're, you're learning to, to carry your weight. You're learning to rely on others. You're learning how to win. You're learning how to lose. All of these things are, are important. I think it's magnified a bit when it comes to um, someone with a disability um, simply because the volume of opportunity isn't there that there is for, for, you know, most kids in, in youth sports, you know, you might be the one blind kid in your, you know, group of 200 in your town and all of them have an opportunity to play soccer or tennis or, or dance or whatever it is that they want to do, you know, and you, you, you may or may not be able to do that as, as the blind kid. So I think having those opportunities are, are much more precious. Um, and you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the part that I've taken the most pride in as we've grown this sport is that we are, we are increasing those opportunities, um, for people to, to have an, an outlet and to have something to do. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, before we wrap here, I know you did mention uh, having a guide dog, and I wanted to give you a chance to just mention uh, your guide dog, the guide dog's name, the school you got uh, the dog from, and just the, the benefits of having a guide dog. Oh, yeah. So my guide dog is Bo. He's, um, <laughs> he's going to be six next week. 
Um, oh, nice. Yeah, he's um, he's a black lab, and he came from uh, Freedom Guide Dogs in Utica, New York. Yep. And um, Bo is very well known around the blind hockey community because <laughs> um, he has traveled to many events with me. And um, the, the nice thing about, you know, going to a, a, a blind specific event is that um, the volunteers and, and whoever's running the event is versed on the needs of blind people when they get there. And so one of the needs that I have is someone to look after Bo and possibly feed him and taking, take him out to relieve him, um, while I'm playing. And, um, so, you know, volunteers, uh, dozens of volunteers have looked after Bo at this point, and I'm extremely grateful to all of them. And, and he, um, he misses that to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And that's the, you know, that's the other cool thing about, um, blind hockey is, is always, you know, maybe a half dozen or so athletes that, that use a guide dog at any given event. And you can look up on the concourse of, a of a hockey arena and you see these dogs sitting there <laughs> watching their owners <laughs> play. <laughs> and, um, but no, having a, a guide dog in general is just amazing. You know, he's, he's with you all the time. Um, he's, yeah, he's, he's loyal. He's, um, he's always happy. He's always happy to work. He, he can't wait till the next time we're going out to walk, um, and, and to do something. So, um, it's been, um, he's my first, um, and it's been, a a, a great experience. Uh, you know, for me, I, I went from most of my life, not even, you know, I was visually impaired. I was legally blind, but I didn't, need a cane to navigate it all. And then hmm. I got to a point where I needed a cane. And then I got to a point where, you know, the dog made more sense. And so it's just, it's a whole nother level of freedom, of uh, independence and, um, it's responsibility too. You know, it's, um, he's a living creature. I have to, you know, care for him and, um, sure. but he cares for me at the same time. So it's, uh, it's well worth it. Yep. Nice mutual partnership there, it sounds like. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, uh, again, we've been speaking with Kevin Shanley, uh, Dr. Kevin Shanley, I guess I should say. And uh, Kevin, just want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion here and, and really am rooting for blind hockey. Uh, you know, hopefully get to try it myself at some point and just uh, really look forward to following this sport and, and, and following your involvement as well. Absolutely. We'd love to have you anytime. And uh, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.com.